Hello, and welcome to the One Medicine Podcast from Today's Practitioner. In each episode, we share the expertise of a respective thought leader, some you'll know and others you'll probably meet for the first time. We cover topics important to you, always with a focus on improving the health outcomes of the patients you treat, while expanding your understanding of the many healing modalities being used today. Welcome to the One Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Lutz, and with me today is our guest, Angela Pfeiffer, the SIBO guru. Why is SIBO challenging to treat? Might the issue lie in hasty diagnosis and repetitive treatments without deeply exploring the root cause of SIBO? Could its persistent nature be attributed to the common approach of using antibiotics or herbal equivalents and restrictive diets aimed at starving gut bacteria? Join us today for an honest discussion with Angela Pfeiffer, the renowned SIBO guru. Welcome, Angela. I appreciate you coming on today. I'm going to go through your bio in just a second, but I do appreciate it. I know we've tried to get this organized uh, in the past, and so I'm really excited to have you on. It's a great topic, lots of interest from our readers and subscribers, and Mm -hmm. you're the expert. You're the perfect person to have on the show. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. So I'm going to uh, just go quickly go through your bio, and then I've got a couple questions we'll ask before we really get into the topic. Sounds Uh, good. Okay, a quick bio on Angela. Angela Pfeiffer has been in clinical practice as a functional medicine nutritionist for two decades. She holds a master's degree in nutritional science, graduating at the top of her class from Bastyr University in 2005. Angela is an authority on everything gut, specializing in functional gut disorders from the beginning of her career. The focus of her practice is to find the root cause of chronic GI symptoms. She is a GI health researcher, functional medicine educator, licensed certified nutritionist, and focuses all her continuing education on GI conditions. Angela sits on the scientific advisory board for Physicians Choice, who sells the number one ordered probiotic on Amazon. She is known affectionately to her patients as SIBO Guru for her focus and success in treating SIBO, small intestine bowel overgrowth, for over the past 12 years. Mm-hmm. She is also the creator of Simply SIBO, FODMAP recipe site to help people dealing with IBS and SIBO expand their diet, Gut RX Guru's Bone Broth, and Functional Medicine Shop Founder. Welcome, Angela. Again, really appreciate you being on here today. And before I stop talking and give you a chance to really share your knowledge with the audience, I have a couple of questions that I like to ask before we get started, just to kind of give folks a little bit more background uh, in general about you and how you look at things. So I'm just curious, you know, how did you become a functional medicine nutritionist focused on SIBO and gut health? You know, what was your path to get here? You know, what, uh, anything happened to you personally or just what, what brought you there? What was so interesting about it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have an undergrad in psychology and I was actually, my goal was to get a PhD in psychology. And I took a course in nutrition at the University of Washington. I didn't, I'm not saying I know, I knew more than they did. It just seemed strange to me how it was presenting. I learned that that's probably the only class that doctors get. Mm -hmm. And it just, I just flipped on a dime. Um, Luckily, uh, Bastyr University was nearby. I live in Seattle, Washington, Mm -hmm. and it just happened that that's the school I chose. I didn't have any health issues prior. I know a lot of people who get into this field, you know, they found uh, their healing in alternative medicine or functional medicine, and it really drove them to get into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so it was just the luck of the draw, honestly, and where I went. And I have such a fascination with the human body and figuring out puzzles. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like the perfect fit. It does seem like a perfect fit. And best year, what yeah. not a better place to do that, right? I mean, correct. Just, yes, yeah. it was great. Yeah. And top of your class, too. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, so, what type of medicine or school of medicine do you practice or do you feel most aligned with and why? Yeah. Uh, team approach with the patient and root cause. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd say functional, integrative. It's kind of all the above. It's yeah. all the above. How do we? treat the patient, what other approaches will help them? How can we team up with the patient and other practitioners to get somebody better? Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes it takes a group. Yeah, makes sense. And really yeah. involving the patient in that process and Correct. understanding it's it's personalized. Everyone is a little bit different um, right. taking that approach. Right. And really sounds like getting to know the patient too. Yeah, Maybe working with them. I mean, we, we obviously, we've got to trust their experience and do a really deep dive into their health history to get them better. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's just missed. I know, you know, we'll look at a little bit of lab history and all, but it's having a really in-depth conversation with the mm-hmm. patient mm-hmm. is what really tells you everything. 
Yeah. And, and that's so different than a lot of conventional practitioners where you've got your three minutes with the doctor and four minutes with the nurse practitioner. Yep. And so th- I think solving this kind of a complicated condition probably mm-hmm. takes that approach. So it's great Correct. that's how you do it. Correct. Okay. So the last question before we get started is, do you think there's a unifying principle that runs through all the types of medicine, regardless of what name it goes by? What would you say is all types of medicine have in common? We just, we all want to see results with our patients. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just common. I think we're all going about it a little differently. I'm sure, you know, unfortunately, I think we, we can see some positive and negatives in all modalities, mm-hmm. you know, but we, we need to get back to patient centered care. Yeah. And for that, we need more time with our patients. Makes sense. We just have to. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And I think now we can jump in. We're talking about SIBO and uh, you're the SIBO guru. Um, Mm -hmm. So where would you like to get started? What do you want to make sure these, uh, the practitioners that are are listening today that they walk away with, you know, is where, where do you want to start? Uh, I think just topically it's, if SIBO is a recurrent condition, why? Mm -hmm. We have to keep asking ourselves that question. SIBO is being treated on an algorithm when SIBO is a secondary condition. It's not a primary condition. Mm-hmm. And we're all com- constantly complaining at how recurrent SIBO is. So could it be the way it's being treated? That, that makes That's sense. So, so tell me. Really you know, driving that? You see a lot of patients. And do they yeah. come to you saying, I think I've got SIBO? Or do you diagnose them based on, and how do you do that? I mean, how do you determine that, hey, this patient has yeah. SIBO? Yeah. So uh, SIBO should be a diagnosis of exclusion. And Mm -hmm. then you should run a lactulose breath test to confirm it. A lot of times I don't think the testing is done. There are some concerns with the testing, but it is what we have and it is what is recommended um, as standard of care. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we would diagnose it. Um, So, you know, I've, I've worked with SIBO for the last 12 years. Initially, I was getting brand new SIBO cases. I just, you know, just tested positive, help me. And so I could approach it a little different, but now I'm usually the seventh, eighth practitioner in line. They've been through multiple rounds of treatment. They have four or five positive SIBO tests. So we know SIBO's there, yeah. but I really set all those aside and do a full onboarding and look at things from a systemic perspective before I would ever jump in and look at treating SIBO, right? So, I mean, we look at SIBO as an epidemic at this point. I mean, that's what everyone's talking about it as, but mm-hmm. You know, yes, SIBO exists definitely, but I don't think at the numbers suggested and absolutely not at the numbers that would warrant overuse of the treatment with antibiotics as we see it. Mm-hmm. We, you know, SIBO is kind of this catch-all for anyone complaining about GI issues and bloating at this point. And, it, you know, it could be anything else. It could be anything else, but SIBO is just, you know, it's that's immediately what a lot of practitioners are jumping to. And then people are just getting on the conveyor belt of treatment, treatment, treatment. Just kind of like that cookie cutter approach with antibiotics and changing your diet. Is that usually something that most practitioners recommend to to alter the diet? Yeah, I think they do. A lot of them, maybe around five years ago, we started to see a lot of more uh, GI doctors and primary care care doctors accepting SIBO as a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so they're handing out a low FODMAP diet and they are giving antibiotics. Right. But we know from the antibiotics, SIBO is going to continue to recur most of the time. So eventually, are those antibiotics doing more harm than good? What are we missing? What's the underlying root cause? Mm Because there's always going to be. SIBO is a secondary condition. So we always have to look for that and treat it. Talk to me a little bit about that. You know, the secondary condition, you know, the antibiotics that are being used to to treat the patient. Why isn't that working? You know, if you could share with us what your thoughts are. That's a fantastic question. (laughs) I think that's the that's the golden ticket question. Why aren't they working? I think SIBO to me is being treated like an infection when it's an overgrowth. It's an imbalance. And so they're already likely dysbiotic when they come into your practice. They're complaining of GI issues. And then antibiotics, antibiotics are being used. Um, yeah, they definitely are going to knock down symptoms because they're knocking down everything. Everything, right. But then is it you're it's going to come back healthier? Where's the where's the momentum? You know, have we corrected motility? What's affecting motility? Have we uh, uh, corrected immune dysregulation? And what's triggering immune dysregulation? Mm-hmm. We have to get more to root cause for people. 
to make this really work and stick. And I think mm-hmm. people, you know, I've seen people on a low FODMAP diet for five years that have come to me. They still have SIBO. It doesn't work. The studies have shown across the board that it does not treat SIBO. Mm-hmm. And how could dropping polyphenols, antioxidants, and fiber be a good thing? Right. Right. We know all the benefits of those, but for whatever reason with SIBO, everything else goes out the window. We're going to restrict all of those. We're going to tell people this is recurrent, which to me makes it more recurrent. Mm-hmm. You know, the placebo effect. They're going down the road of antibiotic, antibiotic, antibiotic. And everyone's beating their head against the wall that this is a reoccurring issue. But I think a lot of people are part of the problem. And I don't mean that with any disrespect. Sure. I say that respectfully. We have to step back and rethink how we're treating SIBO. Yeah. Well, we have yeah. to believe practitioners have the, the best intentions. They Cor- made absolutely hundred percent knowledge on the hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned root cause a couple of times. Is there any specific common root cause for most people's SIBO? Yeah. The two main ones that we see are post-infectious IBS. So you get a food poisoning event mm-hmm. and uh, the common denominator with that is the cytolethal distending toxin. So the CDTV toxin and your immune system will mount an antibody response to that. And in some people, you'll get crossover where that antibody will start, an immune system will start attacking vinculin. And vinculin is involved in motility with the migrating motor complex in the intestinal tract. Mm-hmm. So about three months after a food poisoning event, you'll get a slowdown in motility. SIBO will be set up and you'll start getting symptoms. So kind of unmask at that point. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Um, second, I would say is parasites. Parasites reside in the upper GI. They will stall gastric emptying, stomach acid production, bile flow, and motility. Mm-hmm. So those two are really common. Um, it's hard to test for for parasites. My favorite test is Power Wellness Research. Mm-hmm. It is hands down the most sensitive test, okay. hands down. Real quick, I had a patient I worked with last year. She came back to me a couple months back and said colleague of mine and I went to an event within 24 hours. We had um, loose watery stool just dumping nonstop. Mm -hmm. Uh, They go to their doctor and they're trying to do everything they can. Obviously they ran over, over the course of three to four months for both of them. They ran three standard path screens negative every single time. And she calls me and I'm like, why didn't you call me sooner? <laughs> Let's work on some things here. But I, I, I said, go get this test. Let's, you know, para wellness research. And they found cryptosporidium and giardia in both of them. Wow. So it's a very, very sensitive test. And oftentimes the, the main tests are being um, missed. We'll include um, a link to that company. If, love if to, love yeah. to. Yeah, yeah we'll they're, they're the really, notes. really great. Yeah. Really great. Um, and there's there's a lot of other reasons people can get SIBO, you know, scleroderma, pseudo obstruction, adhesives, Crohn's disease, active inflammation um, can really drive a lot of this celiac radiation or itis. Wow. Small bowel diverticuli disease where you can get pockets. And um, to me, that would be more of an infection. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that should be treated probably a little bit more with antibiotics if we have mm-hmm. pockets that are, that are getting infected. Diabetic enteropathy. Um, Ehrlich's Danlos syndrome, where it's a genetic predisposition to uh, loose ligaments, mm-hmm. and then the intestines drop a little bit, creating pockets, surgical resectioning of the intestinal tract. Like, there's a lot of reasons why this could be set up. Yeah. Um, I'd say, from a functional perspective, most often those are probably more the you know smaller percent of people for root cause. Most often, it's post-infectious IBS or parasites. Got it. And so, in your intake, you're you're obviously asking lots of questions to the patient to get some of this stuff to top of mind so you know have a better direction to go yeah so when i onboard somebody you know that i'm going to work with uh, i like to see labs for the last five to ten years ten years if they can get them i have them send those over and you know fill out my paperwork of course i sit down prior to the onboarding session with them and put everything into a flow chart Mm -hmm. so i am so primed and ready sometimes it takes me half an hour sometimes it takes me an hour it's all worked into you know, my fees on how I work with somebody. And uh, so I'm primed. And then we have a 90 minute onboarding session. And we do a deep, deep dive into history. And part of that includes looking at prior practitioners, Mm -hmm. and what was diagnosed what which what was was diagnosed, what was treated, 
Um, and what I see from that in history is time and time again, we've got, you know, SIBO as the target when they've got multiple diagnoses. And oftentimes out of the gate, it's just antibiotic without even testing. Right. Let's see if an antibiotic works. I just, where are we? This seems like such a bizarre world. We all know that there is bacterial resistance happening. Why are we just throwing these things out like candy for SIBO patients? It's so strange to me. Or well, really for uh, most patients, you know, I think yeah. it's, it's too common. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think when I see all that, it results in a lot of doctor hopping mm -hmm. and or practitioner hopping, whoever they're working with, and they're going kill phase to kill phase to kill phase. And right. I don't think a lot of practitioners look at that. They'll onboard, they're doing the best they can, just full respect there. Sure. But they'll onboard, they'll look at symptoms, they'll look at labs, and they're like, oh, SIBO, you have gut symptoms. Let's treat SIBO. Here's my protocol. Mm -hmm. But they don't know that six other prior doctors just did the same thing you did. Maybe a little different in the protocol. So why is yours going to work? Yeah. So the, it's patient, such, the patient yeah. doesn't say that to the doctor. Hey, I've already tried this route. Typically, they're like, you're the doctor, so I'm going to listen to what you say. Cor I, correct. Yeah. Correct. And that's when people come to me after being through six or seven different practitioners. And a lot of us have this. This isn't just me getting these people. You know, it's, mm -hmm. again, SIBO is recurrent. They do a protocol with somebody. It doesn't work. They move on. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. so, you know, they're coming to me. I'm the seventh in row or 12th in row. And they're like, oh, you're the one. You're going to give me the protocol that's going to kill this. Right. But I'm seeing the six fairly robust treatments. And they're either aren't getting better or they're getting worse. So mm -hmm. we need to step back and think, rethink the diagnosis. Is the diagnosis even correct? Has root cause ever been identified? And 90% of the time it has not. So it hasn't. They're just not looking at it. Yeah. So you've, you've mentioned a few that are common from what you've seen, the parasite and an infection. So you've, you're doing some testing to determine which one of those it might be. Yep. And then yeah. And that really comes into play again. That's the health history you know, intake when I'm, when I'm having the conversation, that's where that conversation is so important because mm -hmm. you can lay out across their life, what burdens did they bring in? When did things change? Where were they living? Think back on stress state. You kind of look back and go, okay, 15 years ago, things changed drastically for you. Mm -hmm. Where, what was going on the year prior? Right. Right. So it's that kind of thing. And then that starts to, you know, based on their symptoms and what happened and how consistent they were, I start thinking about different root causes that make sense to me. And then we yeah. can start testing for that. Okay. So I know one thing we talked about earlier that we wanted to touch on uh, you and I, before we started the, the podcast, you know, can a stool test diagnose SIBO? Yeah. What are your thoughts? So on the resounding answer is absolutely no. And it's ridiculous that it's being listed on any of the digestive stool tests. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we were taught up to three years ago were really two things. One, the, excuse me, the small intestine and large intestine were on different planets when it comes to terrain and makeup of microbes. Mm -hmm. The stool testing represents the large intestine only, right? That's mm -hmm. what we were told forever. So now we've got all these stool tests uh, coming out with the companies labeling SIBO, SIBO on these and they shouldn't be. So, and I've, 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 I've seen it with, you know, when talking to other doctors, oh yeah, they have SIBO. I just treated off the stool test, which again is the, like, what are we doing? That's right. not the way that we diagnose SIBO. Let's stop just throwing antibiotics at people. Like we, again, we just have to rethink that. So I appreciate stool, easy to access, you can access, you know, extract the DNA. You can amplify it easier. I get that, but it's only representing four to five feet of large intestine and not the small intestine. From a small intestine perspective, basically we had biopsies and we had aspirate cultures. You mm -hmm. know, anytime we're looking at the microbes there, the drawback being that the aspirate cultures would weren't sterile; they'd get contaminated um, when they came up through the mouth. Mm -hmm. But we still noticed drastically different microbes present <laughs> in those tests. Versus stool testing, right? We have 20 feet of small intestine. It's highly active, absorptive surface, you know, nutrition assimilation, detox. You know, this is where bile, gastric contents of food, uh, pancreatic What's secretion, yeah. they all converge. So much going on. And it's different than the large intestine. So what's, what's interesting is in the last five, I believe five years ago is when these studies started to be done, but, you know, cedar cyanide basically invented a new aspirate catheter that allows to uh, go down into the small intestine, bring out fluid in a sterile way. So mm -hmm. it's not getting contaminated as it's coming back up. And so they have done a series of uh, studies called the reimagined studies. 
And reimagine is a mouthful, um, but revealing the entire intestinal microbiota and its associations with the genetic, immunologic, and neuroendocrine ecosystem. Wow. So, yes. So there's <laughs> two studies that... Yeah, it's a mouthful. So reimagine. <laughs> so much easier. So two studies I want to look at with this and kind of talk about in relation to this, because again, if if this is the only thing I can get other practitioners to take home, mm-hmm. is we we have to start pushing back on the stool testing companies for even adding this, and we can't use any reference to a stool test to treat SIBO. Okay. One question before you go into this other piece. Yeah. Why did they think stool was the the way to test for it. And quickly, you know, again, just a, in a nutshell, why shouldn't we be looking at stool as an indicator for SIBO? Yeah. Um, so stool is only representing representing the large intestine, not the small intestine. Right. That's it. And yeah. I think it was just out of sheer convenience that we've always looked at stool. Makes sense. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Easy to collect all of that. I mean, you know, to go in and do a, um, an aspirate that far down in the small intestine is incredibly invasive to have somebody poop in a container, right. not invasive, pretty easy, yeah. gross, but right. not invasive. Right. <laughs> so yes. So that's, that's mainly why you could do a lot uh, larger studies, less mm-hmm. expensive, all of it. Sure. So it's just how we, and, it, and again, until this aspirate catheter was invented by cedar cyanide, we didn't know what we were really getting on a lot of the, the yeah. tests. How, right? how frequently do you have your patients uh, use that test. Which test? The, the one with the catheter. So this isn't available for outpatient. Okay. This is only being used in studies. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So that's it. So basically what they're doing with their reimagined studies, I know they're saying the entire intestinal microbiota, but they're really looking at the comparison of the small intestine to large intestine. I see. I see. Um, as a whole. So the first study mapping the mapping the segmental microbiomes in the human small bowel in comparison with stool and quoting from their study uh, tremendous differences between the small bowel and stool microbiomes. Our findings demonstrate that the small bowel microbiome is unique and that stool is not a surrogate for the entire gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. So basically, what they did is they used that catheter and they brought up fluid from the duodenum the jejunum, and then the furthest point that they could reach in the small intestine. And what they found was that the alpha and beta diversity were similar for all three collections within the small intestine. Mm-hmm. What they found were differences when we start to look at small intestine, and large int- intestine were pretty drastic. In the small intestine, 90% of the phyla were formicides, proteobacteria, and actinobacteria. And then in this study that they that they did, formicides were dominant, representing about 50% of the phyla. And of that phyla, 68% were the order of lactobacillus. When they looked at stool, 90% of the phyla were formicides and bacteroidetes. Uh, and then in the stool, the formicides were 93% clus- clostridials. So very drastic difference in presentation. So if we're looking at stool and we're like, oh my gosh, look at all that clostridial that's present, that could be SIBO. You're looking back up in the small intestine, well, almost 70% of the permicutes were lactobacilli. It's that you're looking at the large intestine and then treating the small intestine. Interesting. Right? So, and so basically that's you're, your, you're saying yeah. stool test just doesn't work. And this, this proves that essentially. Yeah, it just doesn't work. Um, in the stool, they found that proteobacteria um, there was, that were present in the stool, two classes were more abundant, uh, one of them being the delta proteobacteria, and those are our hydrogen sulfite producers. Mm-hmm. So desulfibrio and bilophilia, those are more present in the large intestine. And if we think about, you know, the three subtypes with SIBO, we have hydrogen producers, methane producers, and hydrogen sulfide producers. Mm-hmm. And so if you run a TRIO SMART test, which is the only test, only breath test that looks at uh, hydrogen sulfide, mm-hmm. basically there's a much, much, much more likelihood that that's from uh, the large intestine. And on the test, they'll, they'll say that they can't distinguish between the small intestine and the large intestine with the test. But then those people are being told they have SIBO. So and then they're going down the rabbit hole of yeah. treating SIBO. And I'm not saying that they don't need to treat hydrogen sulfide. It's not good to have that in mm-hmm. the large intestine. But do you need to change your diet to a SIBO diet if it's large intestine? It just, it's just, it's just really, it gets to be interesting as we're looking at all of it. 
It sounds really complicated, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I would agree with that. I breath test isn't that. giving you everything that they say it does. Stool test isn't giving you much of right. what they say it is. Right. So where, where are you going? What, how are you moving through this process with your patient? Yeah, if I had a patient come to me without SIBO diagnosed, and I suspect SIBO, I'm still setting it aside and saying, what else is going on? SIBO is not my first thing that I go to because if SIBO is present, once we get to it, what else is going on? It's a starting point for investigation. It's not an end point for treatment, Mm -hmm. right? So the testing that I do, if I am going to test for SIBO, it's through Aerodiagnostics. That's my go-to breath test company. And they are absolutely phenomenal and amazing. Gary Stapleton is the owner wealth of information. And if, you know, just reach out, get a, get a test and run it, just walk through a conversation with him and it'll, it'll, it'll really make sense. Um, they're using Quintron machines. They're uh, very reliable and I have uh, good results. You know, right. when I, when I see that and when I'm treating, I'll make sure you um, include the link to that as well. Yeah. yeah love to love to. Yeah. Great. Gary's amazing. Great. So um, I'd love to look at another study that was also mm-hmm. done by the Reimagine Group. This one is titled "The Duodenal Microbiome and Alt um, is Altered in Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth." So this one compared dunedial aspirates for bacterial uh, composition and also compared this to a SIBO breath test. Mm-hmm. And when they do the aspirate and pull up the fluid and test it, they're looking for a SIBO diagnosis is a greater than ten to the third of bacteria. Okay, so there has to be a larger presence of bacteria present to be identified as a SIBO positive on the aspirate. And so of those SIBO positive with the aspirates, they had less diversity, proteobacteria and classes of proteobacteria, uh, gamma proteobacteria and delta proteobacteria were higher. And then part of that phyla, a family underneath that is the Enterobacteriaceae family under and those were higher and that was really linked with bloating right so we had a lot more proteobacteria uh different classes than we see elsewhere mm-hmm. so what they also found when proteobacteria and then enterobacteria ca were higher that permicutes was lower when i see that my question is should antibiotics be the first step here mm-hmm. right if we back up we know that proteobacteria is very prevalent in the oral microbiome Mm-hmm. averaging maybe around 34%. We know that is like an acidic environment. We know that the upper duodenum is around six on the pH scale. And the pH scale becomes a little bit more basic, I think till about 7.3 as it goes down the small intestine, if I remember correctly. So what's the common denominator in all of that? Could it be low stomach acid? You know, allowing the proteobacteria to migrate through the stomach and more basic pH in the upper duodenum that could uh, account for less formicutes in that area. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can correct stomach acid for sure. We could, Mm -hmm. you know, that can be done fairly easily with supplements, but we can Mm -hmm. also look for root cause. Is it hypothyroid driving down metabolic rate, sympathetic dominance, driving blood flow away from the digestive tract and organs, which could be caused by a myriad of issues, but so many of our patients are so stressed out. Of course. They're just so stressed out. And with the political crap, (laughs) <laughs> There's no other way to say it. No Political crap, COVID crap, all of it crap. It's just, we were already stressed as a nation. And now made worse. Yeah. Yep. Um, could it be caused by an autoimmune condition like AIG, atrophic um, uh, gastritis, mm-hmm. PPI use, um, excessive alcohol consumption, pancreatic insufficiency, H. pylori, age-related? Is it parasites, mm-hmm. right? But n- they don't look at that. It's antibiotics, antibiotics, antibiotics. That's why it doesn't work. It seems after all this time, and that's been the treatment, and SIBOs just continue to be recurrent, it seems like that's the common denominator. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there aren't some cases that might need to be treated with antibiotics. They can be very severe. They might need them. Mm -hmm. We definitely see an improvement in symptoms going on antibiotics, but that's not necessarily treating root cause. Right. Especially if it rebounds, you know, comes back and, and uh, you're not solving the issue. Mm-hmm, right? right. So I'd say just to wrap up the conversation on testing for stool testing for SIBO, mm-hmm. it's causing practitioners and patients to go down the rabbit hole. 
oftentimes skipping a breath test, oftentimes skipping root cause and going straight to antibiotics. And it's just leading to more and more overtreatment. Right. I mean, what my takeaway so far is this is such a complicated thing to really figure out what's causing it. Yeah. Just using that, you know, I wish this was the magic bullet antibiotic because it does work, may limit some symptoms at times. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the temptation for a practitioner that's not really skilled in getting down to the root cause and truly solving this for patients, which it sounds like you've done for a long time by taking the approach that you're doing. Lots of research, tons of questions, and really looking at some different testing that uh, other practitioners might not be using. Yeah, it took me about, I mean, all of us were, I'm honestly, at the start of this, every every practitioner that was working within the SIBO realm was putting people on a starvation diet and doing kill phases. All of us were, I'm not going to say, stand here and say it wasn't at all. It was just standard of care at that time. And I know it's standard of care right now, but it's not working. (laughs) That's the whole point. It took me about two to three years to start to see enough people recur and and be stuck on the diet to say, wait a second, this isn't even making sense. Right. It's just not making sense. We have to look outside the box with this. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, this happens, I think, with a lot of conditions. There's kind of, this is what we've been doing, you know, whether it's conventional or even some integrative. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. But there are some practitioners out there that are really diving a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we're, we're talking about here is you're sharing what you've learned mm-hmm. over the years, what's worked, what to look for, the questions to ask. And you are getting better results. So hopefully this becomes more of the standard of care, things that you've learned and other practitioners have learned uh, that really solve the issue for patients. Because fortunately, I don't have it. I don't know anyone that does, but just from what I've heard, it's just, it just sounds terrible. You know, just an awful. It really can be. I I would say it, you know, it can be anywhere from symptoms, you know, like a two to three on a scale of zero to 10, and it can be all the way up to a 15 (laughs) for some people. And again, if, depending on how far it is up in the small intestine, it depends on what the root cause is. Um, how long it's been there, all of that, other cofactors. They have an autoimmune that's just getting really flared. And then, it, you know, they're really sensitive to supplements. It's just, it just can be very hard to treat sometimes. Yeah. But it's just kind of got to keep peeling the onion as you get down to root cause and treating and, and stabilizing people. Yeah. So those are the studies. You've talked a little bit about, you know, why is SIBO recurrent? Is there anything else that you want to kind of share about that? Go a little bit deeper on it. Yeah, I'd love to look at the algorithms for how this is being treated, because I think, you know, again, as we look at recurrence, my my thesis here is that it's it's recurrent because we're not getting to root cause and we're overtreating it with antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But that's all that's being presented in the treatment algorithms. And yeah. so there's two algorithms. There's one for alternative medicine and there's one for mainstream medicine. Mm-hmm. And if we look at, you know, we'll look at the alternative medicine first. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll, and I'll say too, both algorithms, standard of care is to test, to do a lactulose breath test. Mm-hmm. That is the standard of care. And there's so many practitioners out there that oh, I'm just, I'm just going to give an antibiotic and see if it sticks to the wall. Please don't do that. Mm-hmm. Please don't do that. And I appreciate sometimes if just cost is completely cost prohibitive for getting a SIBO test, I appreciate sometimes we have to do other things, but for the most part, standard care should not be, I suspect it, here's an antibiotic. Okay, so alternative medicine for the uh, algorithm, basically it's SIBO suspected, you confirm with a breath test. Mm -hmm. There are four choices here. You can put them on a, either, I'll just call it a SIBO diet because there's kind of three out there. There's the... FODMAP diet, the SIBO-specific diet, and there's the um, biphasic diet. But you put them on a diet for a year and a half. There is absolutely no research for that whatsoever. Hmm. I'll just say that. I did a huge write-up for you all for today's practitioner on the pervasive misunderstanding of the FODMAP diet. Very well-researched. If I do say so myself, I worked a lot on that. I'll just say that was a very (laughs) impressive piece. I mean, I I went through it again uh, today before our, our talk. And you pick apart these studies and what's wrong with these studies, you know? And so you can't take their conclusions because they were flawed in many cases. Correct. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You can put someone on an elemental diet. You can put someone on a herbal antibiotics or you can put them on antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And after they go through whatever you're going to put them on of those four, if they feel better, then you keep them on the diet, which is a band-aid approach and you add a prokinetic. That's, the algorithm. If they relapse, 
or if they don't feel better after treatment, you retest and you re- retreat. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why we're going off of symptoms to assess if someone is better or worse. We're supposed to go off of testing. There was a study done in 2016 by Rezzy, pardon me, and uh, Pimentel and Dr. Rao. And the, the study was called How to Test and Treat SIBO, an Evidence-Based Approach. And I'll quote here because I think this is great. Symptomatic response to antibiotics has been proposed as a clinical tool for the diagnosis of SIBO. However, given the nonspecific nature of symptoms, the inability to predict which antibiotic may be effective against which constellation of symptoms or organisms, the potential for misuse of antibiotics and the development of drug resistance, and the recent increase in the incidence of C. diff, Empiric treatment with antibiotics may pose unjustified risk to the patients. Mm-hmm. So this is standard of care. We're supposed to test first and then give an antibiotic. I am, I love that they said it. And yet I do, I see a lot of patients that come out of cedar cyanide working with the group over there in Pimatel and Reze and they have five rounds of antibiotics, seven rounds of antibiotics. I had, had one person that was put through 12 rounds of antibiotics. Wow. 12. So I kind of, I kind of do this, you know, all right, maybe I can forgive the first round, maybe the second, we do have some studies showing rifaximin, if you do it a second time, which is Mm -hmm. one of the antibiotics for SIBO, you can get better clearance with normalization of the breath test, still, still has a pretty high percentage for recurring. So maybe one or two, three, four, five, I mean, it's the most ridiculous approach to me. It's, to me, it's very irresponsible. You know, and I think, too, with all the antibiotic use, we rely on the bacteria to help us break down fiber. So collectively, you know, what we make, amylase, maltase, lactase, lipase, sucrase, and proteases, Mm -hmm. the bacteria collectively produce 50 to 70,000 different digestive enzymes. And we're just knocking them, knocking down the variety, knocking them down, knocking them down, knocking them down, and then people get more and more stuck on the diet right? Because they're altering fibers, they're knocking down fibers in the diet, and then they're having a hard time after all that treatment, expanding their diet, while you're not relying as much on the bacteria to help you with your food digestion. And and that's because you're, you're kind of narrowing the diet and what you're feeding the gut. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So I just curious about that real quickly. Um, Is there anything that you feel like your patients should be eating? Just in general, if, you, if you're like this person, I think they have SIBO based on your diagnosis. Is yeah. other things they should eat to to feed the good bacteria or help the help the cause? Yeah, I mean the idea that we can feed the good bacteria or starve the bad bacteria, I don't think is really founded anywhere at mm-hmm. all. I want, I mean, obviously, I want people to eat whole foods. I want mm-hmm. people to eat a variety. Most people are going to need to alter their diet in some way because there's big triggers coming in. Um, I'd say for SIBO, you use usually onions and garlic, you know, or the fructans um, in that in the groups. Those are usually the main offenders. Lactose, I think people usually know that they have a reaction to that. So usually we're just kind of adjusting things. So there isn't, I don't, I don't want people to have to deal with symptoms on this, you know, six or seven out of 10 while we're trying to treat. So there might be some alteration there just to settle things down a little bit. So it's manageable while we're working through treatment and root cause and everything. Mm-hmm. But I want, I mean, the more, the better, the more, the better. Oftentimes people are handed this handout that says you've got to go on this diet and it's a long laundry list, like a FODMAP diet, long laundry list of what could cause osmotic shift in people who have IBS. Mm-hmm. That's what it was used for. And mm-hmm. people are taking it as, you know, like at face value of these foods trigger SIBO, I must pull these foods. I see. Right. And then they're yeah. just, they're pulling everything and it I'm should never be used that way. It just should not be used that way. All right. So the second one, the second algorithm was the conventional algorithm. So again, SIBO, it's tested. If they find methane, the recommendations are broad spectrum antibiotics. If they find hydrogen, it's broad spectrum antibiotics. And for the hydrogen, if it's hydrogen alone, the recommendation for the broad spectrum antibiotics are amoxicillin, rifaximin, or Cipro. Cipro. And Cipro just pisses me off. Yeah, that's terrible. It is such a bad antibiotic. It has so many side effects. It ruptures tendons it has a black box warning 
and we're going to use it for hydrogen production in the small intestine that is an overgrowth and not an infection. I had a patient I onboarded last month, um, and she was just newly diagnosed with SIBO. I'd say her symptoms were probably just collectively like a two to three out of 10. Yeah. Cipro out of the gate, out of the gate. Just, I don't understand that. Right. So I think that the part of this, again, we've got this algorithm. It's being presented in studies as how we treat this. It's being presented by Pimentel's group, who mm -hmm. I have great respect for and all the studies that they've done and what they've added to the field. Um, great respect for insights that they're seeing. But this is what's being offered. It's just so antibiotic heavy. Yeah. And so doctors are happy to pick up, you know, OK, here's the plan. Here's the algorithm. This is how we're treating. And so if they get a clinical response, uh, they're supposed to add strategies to help with the, you know, keeping people in remission, basically. Mm -hmm. They're not mentioning cure here, just remission. Right. Um, and then if they get a reoccurrence, it's kind of a rinse and repeat with treatment. Um, alongside the chart in the paper, and we'll link all these, I'll link all the studies over. I'll get you copies of mm -hmm. all those. But alongside the chart printed vertically is, quote, consider elimination or modification of the underlying cause of SIBO. Consider, consider, but that's not, it's kind of just there. It looks like a nice border thing. Little, <laughs> the most, side note. Yeah. For the most part, most of it is just antibiotics. And in that same paper, I'll quote one sentence here. They say SIBO is a relapsing disease, especially when there are predisposing factors. There are always predisposing factors. Right. Always, always, always. So that does just doesn't make sense to me. I almost feel like if somebody walks in and says, I, I feel like I have SIBO and the doctor gives them or packs them and they walk away and they're kind of cured. I don't really think they had SIBO. Right. SIBO is, you know, it, it's not a topical condition. It's that there's a lot of factors leading to it and mm -hmm. setting it up. And that just doesn't make too much sense. Well, uh, to the, me. the antibiotics aren't going to fix that root cause that you talked about earlier on. Right. They're not. And so going back to kind of the stool testing versus what we see in the small intestines, the rifaximin is used a lot. It's they uh, they say it's, you know, completely safe. It's a non-absorbing antibiotic, so it doesn't go systemic. It's active in the small intestine because bile is present. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of, you know, 98 percent gets reabsorbed before bile gets reabsorbed before the large intestine. So it's only acting on the small intestine. But they're claiming that it's safe because they've only looked at stool tests for it right so we're not seeing negative effects in the large intestine and sometimes we even see bifidobacterium go up we've never seen a study with rifaximin with a reimagined group with rifaximin and the effects on the small intestine we, we just haven't um and it'll be interesting because dr pimentel is on the board with salix which makes rifaximin so it'd be interesting if they ever would do a study like that or if they wouldn't I think it's These interesting like that it. I've not I've not seen because I've I kind of watched their studies and all I've not seen it done in a study I'd love anyone to correct me if, if if they know this has been done I haven't seen it done in a study and I haven't seen a study proposal well you're um, probably for, right yeah. <clears throat> for that published yeah so it's just interesting it's just interesting so we talked a little bit about root cause of SIBO is there <laughs> anything else you want to say about that or uh do you feel like you've yeah, I think I think that was yeah. covered enough. Yeah, I just think yeah. again, um, post-infectious IBS, you can test vibrant labs. There's the Candida and IBS profile, and mm -hmm. that will look for antibodies to the CDTB toxin, and mm -hmm. then also vinculin, and then the IBS sure and the IBS check test. Okay. Either of those, um, all of those will look for root cause for that, and then uh, parasite would be para wellness research. Okay. Yeah, that's really the best one. Okay. Um, and then you've talked a little bit. Does diet help SIBO? Anything else you want to? mentioned about that. So the diet doesn't help SIBO in the way that it's going to starve any organisms. Right. It causes a lot of fear and isolation. Mm -hmm. It causes disordered eating patterns. Mm -hmm. It creates so much fear around food. When you have chronic GI symptoms mm -hmm. and you've been, you know, identified as having SIBO, every hiccup is right. The fear of SIBO getting worse in your system. Anxiety, and that's not helping either. Anx correct. And yeah. so people are being told they can control this with food. Then they start to feel like they're eating something that's wrong, that's causing this. Mm -hmm. It's so like, we do not need to set up fear around food ever for a human being. 
We need healthy food. We need variety coming in. We need a good relationship with food. Always. Always. Right? Because the more stressed out they are around eating, the worse everything is going to be. It's going to be hard to get in front of it. Yeah. So how do you talk to your patient about that kind of thing? You know, so your, your patients come in, they're presenting, you're mm-hmm. trying to get to the root cause mm-hmm. and you're doing that stuff. I mean, how are you probably using your psychology background to, yeah. I think so many patients probably need that. They need that support. And they really do. Area. So how, yeah. tell me a little bit how you would approach that with a patient. Yeah, they really do. Uh, for the most part, again, I get, I get people that have been on the gravy train with SIBO mm-hmm. for quite some time, usually years. And so most of them have been on one of the restrictive diets for a very long time. And I just let them know out of the gate, we are going to work to expand your diet. You do not need to be on this. You should have never been put on it. It's not helping to treat SIBO. And there's usually a collective sigh of, oh, thank God, because they always feel like they're starting up with somebody new. We're going to restrict everything yeah, again. What else am I not going to be able to eat now? But yeah, exactly. And so I, I spend my days expanding people's diets nonstop. Yeah. Nonstop. And then you talk to them about stress relief or how to deal with their anxiety. I mean, you give them mm-hmm. some lifestyle changes or recommendations. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I treat top down. So I'm always looking at stress and what that's doing to the system, what's driving it. Mm-hmm. You know, we do we do see that there's specific traits for people who get post-infectious IBS and also go on to develop SIBO and anxiety as a trait. That's very mm-hmm. common with that group. So kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Don't know. Have they been anxious throughout their life for other reasons? And now this kind of set up them being more at risk for getting, you know, that food poisoning um, mm-hmm. event. Because I I mean, it's kind of funny. My uh, husband and I went out on a date years ago and uh, we went to a new restaurant. It had the tiniest little bar. It was like that big of a bar. Yeah. And so we just uh, had one plate that we both ate off of. And um, I got deathly sick and he did not. <laughs> so like, it was the same food. How, yeah. did, how did I get sick and not him? Right. But yeah. we certain traits will set that up for people, you know, yeah. not having good, robust bacteria in your intestinal tract and um, a healthy, balanced immune system and, mm-hmm. you know, just good immune endurance overall, you're going to be more susceptible. Having low stomach acid, you're going to be more susceptible. Right. Um, and anxiety and keeping someone in that sympathetic dominance is, but I mean, we, unfortunately, we don't have a middle ground. It's an on off switch, you know, right. rest and digest sympathetic dominance. I think we all know that, but when you're in you know, rest and digest, you have 50% blood flow going to your digestive tract and organs. And when you're in stress state, you have 5%. Right. It's 5%. It is a, it's choking off of all, you know, fluid coming into those areas, chemicals coming into those areas that help us digest the whole way down. Yeah. Right. So do you recommend to patients, you know, get exercise, try to meditate, stress relief? Vagus nerve stimulation is something I'm hearing a lot about now that mm-hmm. uh, I wonder how that might might impact this. Yeah, some some people definitely might need that. Um, again, I like just to you know, kind of treat top down. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, correcting oral microbiome, looking at um, stomach acid issues, gastric emptying issues, and just kind of going down. So down just get the whole the system road. firing on all cylinders are really working properly. Correct. Yeah. To fix the gut, we need to get them out of sympathetic dominance and we have mm-hmm. to support and open up all the digestive pathways. Mm-hmm. People chewing until the food is liquid, people taking de- you know stomach support if they need it, digestive enzymes if they need it, mm-hmm. making sure that we can you know have good bile and bioflow coming through. Like we have to correct all of those to start mm-hmm. rebalancing everything to yeah, me. So it's a whole and system. I, I, it's good it's results just, with it. Yeah, it's the yeah. whole system. That you work on and that's i think that's really interesting you know it's you spend a lot of time with your patients you're not looking for one thing to fix this complicated issue and you're really probably helping them bring their whole system back into proper functioning which is going to help everything correct. yeah you know. correct anything else that you feel like you want to share with the with the group here um yeah. one other thing know. is on one other thing on rifaximin if we can look at a study real quick sure. absolutely So this study is titled Small Intestine Bacterial Overgrowth and Irritable Bowel Syndrome, an update. Mm -hmm. And it's by um, Takakura and Pimentel. I like Pimentel very much, love his studies. (laughs) So so he's great. But um, they looked at a meta-analysis and the normalization of breath tests in response to antibiotics. So eight of 10 studies used rifaximin. What they found was that 49.5% of people had normalization of breath test using rifaximin. So more than half the time they didn't. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. at least for the first round. So I think that's important to point out. I will say if you go and listen, you know, if you go to conferences and listen to um, Rizé or um, Pimentel, oftentimes, oh, there's one other gentleman I'm thinking of, I can't remember his name, but oftentimes they're claiming it's like 80% plus effective. And that's because they give people a second round. <clears throat> the study design is one round, what happens? And they're like, oh, we'll just give them a second round. Look, it's 80% plus. And it's just, we kind of have to look at that first round with the study design as, as it was laid out. We do see rifaximin improving symptoms, but transiently, maybe for just weeks or months, that's from the study. Um, but I think what's interesting is that 10% of people who were placed on placebo for the studies that did that mm -hmm. had a normalization of breath test. 10%. Wow. I, I love the power of placebo. I just love it. Yeah. Rifaximin was compared to placebo in three of the studies. It had a favorable response, but it was not statistically significant. That was fun. And again, they, you know, they just continue to state and, and every, I feel like it's rifaximin, this is standard of care, safe and effective, but they've only tested it through stool. So I'm very interested to see what it actually does in the small intestine in terms of the, the bacteria and all. And how will we find that out? Through a reimagined study that would. The reimagined study. Yeah, that, that would, that would do that. They're the only ones that can really look concisely at the makeup of the microbes in the small intestine. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, I think we've covered a lot. And um, is, is there a, a pearl, something you really want to make sure that if there's one thing the listeners walk away with, you know, is there one thing to just kind of summarize it, a real pearl for them to, to walk away with? SIBO is a starting point for the investigation, not the end point for treatment. Love it. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really fantastic. Um, yeah. I knew it would be. You went through a lot of studies. I'd, I'd love to, if you have any write-ups on those studies, um, I'd love to share those with the audience as well. Uh, yeah. In the in the show notes, we'll have all the links and, and different resources that you mentioned in there for them to, to go a little bit deeper. Your contact information will be in there as well. And sure. um, again, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the One Medicine Podcast. I hope you found today's episode interesting and came away with a few insights you can apply to your practice. If you're looking for the show notes, they can be found in the link below. If you want to go deeper on this topic or anything else, please visit todayspractitioner.com and consider registering for our weekly newsletter as well. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us next time.